This episode is sponsored by Clio Websites. When is the last time you listened to a podcast about web development, web design, and small business and didn't fall asleep? Yes, we cover web development, web design, and small business, but like actual human beings with personalities. If you're a beginner, we're not going to talk over your head. It's more like asking your buddy for help. We have guests, we have fun, and let me tell you, these two can get off on a tangent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to HTML All The Things Podcast. This is Matt Lawrence and Mike Curran. That's right, everybody. We are back, and this is the HTML All The Things Podcast. This is the the episode that we've actually been talking about for a while, I think. The last few episodes we've mentioned this, um, or at the very least, Mike and I have been planning this for a while, and it's an episode about failure, sort of a negative topic, but something that we're all going to experience, and I'm going to continue to experience, and you, the listener, is going to continue to experience, and Mike is experiencing currently. No, I'm just being a jerk, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, so the episode title is Failure Will Make You a Better JavaScript developer and it's all about stepping out of your comfort zone and learning to fail and all those things so it's not going to be like a super negative like we failed on this project and we lost money and some of those examples might crop up here and there but that's not what this episode's about it's about basically pushing yourself to be a better javascript developer by messing things up so if this sounds interesting to you and you want to support the show you can go check us out on that patreon leave a review or rating on your podcast app join us in our discord server or share this with your friends now mike we're going to start off with the comfort zone. What is the comfort zone? What does it have to do with failure? Great question. Just before we jump in quickly to that, um, I was just talking to Matt and realized it's Friday. We, we don't usually record on Fridays, and I'm understanding why, because I feel like a Mack truck ran over me, and just trying to record right now is literally like pushing through my comfort zone, just an FYI for everyone. So if I sound weird or if I sound tired or something like that, I'll, I'll try not to. But uh, yeah, Friday, I am beat to shit. But let's get right into the comfort zone. So the comfort zone is re- realistically where we spend most of our time, right? Because it's where we feel the most comfortable. It's a safe place where you use the skills and technology that you're familiar with and you're comfortable with, right? So if you've learned JavaScript, you're comfortable with JavaScript, and then you go on to be a web developer, you might stay in the JavaScript comfort zone and build all your websites using JavaScript, even if other technology is available that might make your production faster, that might make you faster as a developer, that might make it easier to work in a team, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You will intentionally avoid the other stuff and focus on the stuff that you are comfortable with at that time. That's the comfort zone as it relates to being a web developer, right? Now, obviously, the comfort zone can relate to anything, but in this podcast episode, I want to specifically speak to developers, to web developers, right? There's plenty of inspirational podcasts out there that will talk about learning how to fail and the comfort zone, so you can go ahead and listen to those. I want to specifically target the people that are trying to learn and struggling, trying to break out of their comfort zone, trying to become a better developer, trying to make more money as a developer, stuff like that, because it all comes down to what we're comfortable, how we're comfortable being uncomfortable in certain situations, right? So growth always happens outside the comfort zone. When you're growing, that means you're doing something that you've never done before or haven't done very often. And as you're learning new skills, it's in the same spot. 
Okay, now, if you look at it as like a diagram, the comfort zone is a circle and then anything around that is outside the comfort zone. So you can be really outside the comfort zone, you can be really close to the comfort zone, or you can be in the comfort zone, right? So where does growth happen? Usually it's somewhere around the comfort zone. So you step, you know, a few steps out of it, a three steps, two steps out of it. You're probably not going to grow if you're going to be thrown like a kilometer away from your comfort zone, realistically. Like you might, you know, it's that's a sink or swim situation. So if you're a JavaScript developer and then you're being thrown into the seat of a jet fighter pilot, a jet fighter, and you're asked to fly the jet, that is like, you know, a few kilometers away from your comfort zone, you're probably not going to have a good time. You're probably, you might even die. So like <laughs> you don't want to be so far outside your comfort zone that you're literally have no relation to the thing that you're doing. You want to stay around it in a, in a relative area, in a relatively speaking, so that you have at least like maybe a toe inside the comfort zone at worst case scenario, but usually like one foot inside the comfort zone and you're learning things around it and then you keep pushing it out, right? You'll keep pushing your comfort zone out as you learn new things. I think the the number one kind of idea for me that helps me step out of the comfort zone is that I don't want my comfort zone to be too cramped, if that makes sense. I don't want to be in this little tiny circle if we're using that analogy and I don't want to be sort of bumping into things and knocking things over because I'm trying so desperately to stay inside the comfort zone. And sometimes I, I you know, I, I want to stay in the comfort zone. It's like a weekend and I'm lazy and it's a Sunday and it's like, OK, I want to stay in my comfort zone. I don't want to be running around learning new things. But there are times where it's like, OK, let's you know, let's just try this. And even if I don't want to do it, maybe it's like a work day. I finish my work an hour early. I'll jump into a little bit of the Svelte Kid project for full stack struggles, even though I didn't plan on doing it. That's outside my comfort zone. And what's weird about it is uh, my one friend will actually says that maybe this is a weird like connection, but he always says that doing like a physical activity is like a good tired. I almost get that from stepping out of the comfort zone where when I am done for the day, I feel like I am done for the day. It's like, okay, I've earned my rest today. When I step out of the comfort zone a bit, it's sort of like, okay, like I've done it. And even if someone calls me and tries to like, usually that, that annoys me. If someone, if one of our clients tries to like call me outside of work hours, I'm like, get out of here a bit. <laughs> but uh, as I'm sure all of us are, but it, it, it annoys me less because I'm just like, yeah, I'll get to that tomorrow. Like, you know, I've earned my rest today. Whereas like for whatever reason, if I haven't, quote unquote, earned that rest for the day, then I'm like, I feel like, oh, maybe I should be putting more work in. OK, you know, even though it's not an emergency, I will help them right now and I'll work a little a little bit after hours or something. I don't really know how else to describe that. I don't know if that's like a like an accurate description, Mike, if that makes if that like sort of makes sense, I guess uh, you kind of earn your earn your rest. I don't know if that's a, the right way to say it. I, th- I think yes. Like I feel, I feel more accomplished if I accomplish something outside my comfort zone. N- that's not to say that you don't earn your rest if you're working inside your comfort zone, because realistically, like when you're at your job, most of the stuff that you're going to be doing is probably going to be inside your comfort zone. And if you, you know, finish the day and you've only done in- inside comfort zone stuff, as long as you've done the work, you can feel like you've earned it. But I agree with you in the sense that when you accomplish something that is outside of it. It's a different feeling. And I think comparing it to that like lifting weights feeling is a good way to put it because that's kind of how I feel after I have a good workout at the gym and stuff like that, which reminds me I have to go to the gym. So good reminder. Um, but either way, it's important to understand that like co- outside comfort zone is also an energy thing as well. So when you're working outside your comfort zone, you might lose energy quicker 
So that's why there has to be some sort of balance. I'm not saying to always be outside your comfort zone in this episode. That's a good way to lead to burnout. And we'll talk about that a little bit later in the episode. But how do you actually get outside your comfort zone and what happens outside your comfort zone? The reality is what will happen is you will probably fail more often. And what leads to people not stepping outside their comfort zone is their fear of failure. And a big portion of what we're going to be talking about today in the next segment is learn, learning how to fail, learning to fail, and being okay with failure. That's another really, really important uh, concept that I think a lot of people either don't understand or they do un- unintentionally, but I think it's important to be intentional in a way that, hey, I'm okay with failure. And then, and then you almost pursue it sometimes, especially when you're learning new things. You're like, well, how do I make this fail more quickly? Or how do I get to a point where I, I can for sure fail on this and then move on to the next part and figure it out, figure it out. So learning to fail is not something you can switch on in your brain and do right off the bat. You need to practice at it as well. Okay. So just being able to just telling yourself, Hey, I'm going to learn to fail today or I'm going to fail more often. That's not something you can just be like, okay, I'm doing. You need to be okay with it being a process as well, right? Like start small, attend a virtual meetup maybe, right? Like there's different ways that you can grow as a developer. One of those is interacting with other developers. Join and participate in a Discord community. Again, interacting with other developers. Build a small app in a new technology. So if you have never used React, try to launch the React, just just try to launch the basic create a React app or, or just go to Next.js and launch the Next.js app. Follow the documentation. See if you can get to the point where something happens in your browser, right? Do something really small. And I guarantee you what's going to happen in that situation is that something a little bit weird is going to happen where something misfires. Maybe you stutter a little bit more than you wanted to during your virtual meetup. Maybe you say something a little bit weird in your Discord community, or maybe you just can't figure out how to launch React because you've never used Webpack before. Right. So you don't know what NPM is. You don't, you've never used that before. So now you're stuck three steps behind where you want it to be, even though you thought it was going to be kind of easy. And that's, that is a part of failure, right? Like these are little things that you failed on. But the important thing is, is that these are your first tests. And it's important to, to, to build your response to these tests and figure out how are you going to proceed and conquer these little things. So are you going to be like, okay, I've, I tried React. It was, you know, an hour of my time. I'm never going to do it again because I couldn't get past NPM, right? Or are you going to go online and Google, how do you install Node, right? Like why, or, or just Google like, hey, NPM is not showing up. Like the, it, like the console error is NPM, NPM, there's no NPM. And then the next step will be like, how do you install Node? And next step, next step. Like, how do you get to that point? Okay. I, I do want to bring something up because it is early in the episode as well. And that is that the definition of failure, because I we're about to go into the different types of failure, but the definition of failure is obviously going to be a bit fluid. And what I mean by that is some people are going to think they failed if they've made a typo. You know, they forgot a semicolon when there when there needed to be. They forgot a space. They forgot a comma, whatever, some sort of little syntax thing. And they're going to think, oh, my God, like, what am I doing? And that's sort of almost, I would say, maybe maybe it's from like a school environment where it's like, you know, you get you get a circle on that and you lose a mark or something um, or whatever that is stemming from. I mean, things like that are going to happen, like little mistakes like that are going to happen. I mean, the, the, the point I think that 
I, at least I try to tell myself, and it, and it is going to be different for everybody, is I'm trying to reach a certain point. So I'll choose a goal for that day and it'll be something attainable. It's not going to be complete the app unless I'm close to the end. It'll be something like I would like to – like yesterday, actually. I'll just give a real example. Yesterday, I was working on the passive income project, this Felton Cell Kit 1 for, for full stack struggles and I decided, okay, I'm going to try to make this thing – uh, or try to, sorry, restructure this project in the way that Mike told me. So Mike had mentioned, you know, these are how we do folders. These are where the folders should go. And, you know, there's a little bit, like a couple things like, oh, this is, this should be camel case. This should be this way. This shouldn't have a dash in it. And it all worked, but it was like, okay, you know, I, I do want to put into practice what the general, uh, consensus is and what the general sort of standard is, the templated sort of project is so that, even though I am going to mess that up a little bit here and there, I'm sure I at least have an idea of going like, oh, right. This must be like when someone says, hey, that should be this way. It's like, right. That should, that's probably because that's standard and I have an idea. And so my goal for that day, like I said, was just to go do that. And I did that and that's it. And so that was my goal for the day. And I messed it up a couple of times. I moved folders in the wrong spots and did stuff, but they, I didn't fail that day. Like I didn't feel like I failed that day. The goal was met. And so those little mistakes when I'm still sort of in the work or still in the work mode, or if I'm, you know, if I have to leave because I have a plan or something with a friend and I have to leave, but I see it and I'm like, okay, when I come back, like I have to move that folder. Like that's still not a failure to me. It'd be a failure if I sort of left it and then it became sort of decrepit. Maybe it became a problem or Mike comes in and goes, Hey, this really should not be here. This is insecure or something. Then it's like, okay, this is a problem. And like, this is a failure of mine. So that's my definition of failure, but I'm sure it'll be different even for Mike. Um, it'll, the, the definition or the, maybe the, even the, the severity you could call it will be fl- more fluid. Correct. And I think it, it, it also is fluid as in like, as you become more comfortable with something, your failures will be more severe. So initially maybe failure is just not being able to set up the project, but then later on, maybe failure is the project, you know, dying or like uh, the production deployment going down. You know what I mean? That's maybe a failure and just not being able to complete a feature is not. And it, I think it, it's to do with your interpretation and how you take it. Okay. So in your own brain, like what do you consider a failure? I don't think anyone can tell you what a failure is other than yourself. And this is where you have to fight through it again. Like when you feel that failure, like we all feel like, Oh my God, we suck at this. Like this is not something I can do. As soon as you start feeling that, that's when you know you have to fight. And that's where like you can draw that borderline of being, okay, this this feels like a failure. This is when I need to push through it. Okay. But you're right, Matt. We're going to talk a little bit about different types of failure. These are not all the different types of failure, obviously. I'm just going to kind of go through a few of them with some examples that I've had personally. And we'll talk about maybe how like I reacted to it and if it was right or wrong. So first thing is, Tech choice. So a lot of times in the web development industry, we have 5 billion different technologies. So a really easy failure to happen is, hey, I'm creating a new project. It's a new application and I need to choose the tech stack. So am I going to use React? Am I going to use Vue? Am I going to use Tailwind? Am I going to use SCSS? Like there's just so many choices you can make down the line that a lot, there's a lot of room for failure there. Okay, so you could choose the wrong CSS framework that maybe doesn't support this one animation that you need. And now you're going to be spending X amount of time needing to customly implement this animation where you could have chose a different framework that had it, right? Like that kind of stuff in my head 
it, this is what leads to failure for me in my own brain. But for me, like I had a perfect example of this one time where I chose to use CSS Grid. Now, this was about close to five years now, I think, five years ago, when CSS Grid was not supported by every major browser. It was coming into support. And I chose to do CSS Grid for a really big demo project that we were doing for a client. And it just so happened that the device didn't support CSS Grid. So I was left with a situation where I had to quickly rebuild the entire uh, page that I just built in Flexbox, right? So it took me like <laughs> probably three days to build it in CSS Grid. It was a big table thing. And then I had to quickly rebuild it right before the demo just so we could have the demo fully out there. And that was, for me personally, a failure. I didn't do enough research to see that the device had support, for, didn't have support for CSS Grid. I just had to check it or at least check if that version of Safari supported it. And I didn't. So that led to a big kind of jumbling and the, the, the client that I was working with was kind of stressed out at the time. But at the end of the day, realistically, I got the Flexbox version done. I had learned CSS Grid at that time because of the chunk that I did before. And I solidified my skills in the Flexbox because I had to kind of quickly and iteratively uh, create the Flexbox version of it. So I still, although I consider it a failure, I've tried to make it so in my mind that it did lead me to becoming a better developer down the line. Now, again, I take that failure, I learned the lessons from it, I make sure every time, especially if it's a demo or if it's a production application, what who we're making it for, first of all, and if they require certain features that aren't available in the browser. So again, failure is going to happen in production, in your learning experiences, in everything. It's about how you handle it and how you push through it that is going to make it either actual failure where you get stumped and forget forever uh, don't progress in that category, or is it going to be something that you can actually build from and learn from? And it's important to learn from failure. If you don't learn from failure, then it is truly a failure. That, that goes back to the that goes back to the like the little things too, where you you might not consider it a failure that you didn't name your variables correctly or your variables were in the wrong type and you're like learning you're just in the learning stage and you're messing with it messing with it and then you finally learn like oh this is a string it's supposed to be an integer cool i mean same sort of deal where you, know, you technically failed to make it an integer it was supposed to be an integer but many people myself included especially if i'm learning will not consider it a failure it's just sort of like oh this is how it is moving on having that same mentality when it is actually like a blow up like this css grid situation really can help you in a way because it's like oh shoot i was supposed to do it like this you know you've reacted to the problem you fixed the problem and now you know hey i'm gonna just do a little quick double check before i start making something in grid or I'm going to do a little more research, like you said, Mike, before I just kind of dive in and start building a UI uh, with, a at that time, a more advanced or more edge feature that did just come out. Exactly. And again, like the mentality of going into it, expecting failure is another thing that I think is important to have where failure isn't the worst case scenario, right? Like, okay, I'm, I'm writing this code and I'm expecting to refactor it later. I have that all the time. Where I'm like, I just need to, I just need to get this to work. This is the wrong way to do this. This is the wrong way to do this. I'll put a console log here. I'll put that here. And then it fails. And I knew it was going to fail, right? But at least now I have a way to go through and figure out which part failed. 
And this is, <laughs> that's the mindset of a developer is like when you're going into implementing something and you're expecting it to fail, you have to figure out a way to detect your failure. And again, that's another way to learn from it. So I'm always, everything I'm building, I'm like, the first time I do it, it's going to fail. It's going to fail 100%. Now, I get surprised every once in a while when I can write code that doesn't fail on first run. But that is literally a surprise to me, even at this point in my career, right? And then I'm talking complex things like with data fetching and all that. Like that stuff inherently has so many pieces to it that most of the time when you write it, you're going to miss one little thing. But the point is expect it and learn to adapt. What's funny about that, what you just said there is even for myself, I find myself almost thinking I really should be monitoring my time because I keep checking. I'll write a couple lines, check, write a couple lines, check. And I'm like, man, I really should just probably write this whole thing and see if there's a bug in it. But then I'm like, well, what if I miss something small that I won't miss in my check if I check everything all at once? And then I'm going to end up having to come back. So then I have this like weird sort of internal like tug of war where like do I quickly and efficiently write out the whole function and then check it? Or do I check it every couple of lines? I don't know. It's a uh, it's a war of attrition in my brain. I don't know. It's a war of attrition, but it's also something that you just become more comfortable with down the line. As as you as you build more, you'll become more comfortable writing more before checking. And having said that, when you're first starting out in a new technology, I think it's better your way where you write a little bit, check if it works, write a little bit, check if it works, than writing a whole chunk and then spending a bunch of time figuring out which part of it doesn't work. Because as you're building, you'll build the skills to be able to debug larger chunks of code quicker. And at that point, that's when you'll be like, okay, I'm more comfortable just writing this all out and checking, right? So it's, it is an inherently kind of like a chicken and egg problem where you can't really do one without the other. Um, so I think you're doing it correctly, Matt. Just to go on to the next type of failure here, uh, an implementation failure. So again, this is more of a, hey, I've implemented a feature and I put it out to production, everything's working and all of a sudden it breaks, okay? I had an example of this with a slideshow video player that I created where I would essentially play a video after the video is done, play the next video after the video is done, play the next video after the video is done, maybe play an image, do the image for a couple of seconds, then play a video. Um, I had a situation where every time I would cr- play a video, it would actually create a video element without deleting the previous video element, which means for anyone that's listening that uh, probably is a little bit more senior, that that's causing a memory leak. If it's playing for 24 hours, you're creating yeah, you're creating hundreds, if not thousands of video elements that are never getting removed or garbage collected. And that inherently and did cause memory leaks on devices that were out in production. And yeah, that's a failure. You know, like some devices crashed. Other, There had to be uh, hacks written around it where every couple hours we would restart the application and stuff like that. And it was a failure of mine to, first of all, implement it the wrong way. And second of all, not realize what I had done wrong and work around my failure rather than fixing it. Okay, so that's like a double a double whammy. Well, to be I've, fair, to be fair to you though, is like IT does that where they they'll look up a, a workaround while the dev team will, depending on the scale of the company, will then the dev team will then come in and fix it, right? Like, like I mean, you're saying it's a failure, like almost like you know, it's like what have I done? But I mean, programs that have been out for 15 years are still getting bug fixes. That's the thing. It's oh, it's always going to happen. 
Like yeah. this kind of these kinds of things, like these mistakes and oversights, are always going to happen. And eventually, I did find that hey, why are like when I when I went to debug a device that was been running for twenty four hours, why are there thousands of video elements? Obviously, that triggered my like okay, I know I did something wrong. It took me a little a little bit of time, and I fixed it, and all good. But overall, again, I expected this to work. It failed, and then I had to adapt and fix it. And now again. I have this other thing that I'm doing where every time I create something that's supposed to be long running code, so code that runs for hours upon hours, I need to do tests along the way as it runs. I can't rely on the first, you know, 10 minutes of it running and being like, okay, everything's fine. There has to be other testing implementations, other testing integrations to test longevity of the run. So learning something from it, being okay with the failure. And to my client's credit, they were very okay with me failing. And this is what I want to kind of dive into the allowing failure in the workplace to promote innovation and, and speed of development. If your workplace does not allow failure, so if you get reprimanded for every mistake you make, you are inherently slowing down your dev team by a lot. Because that means they have to write tests for every possible scenario. That means that they have to triple, quadruple, 10 times check over over the code that they've written. They sometimes have to use technologies that have been around for a very, very long time that aren't the bleeding edge or even aren't like one step back from the bleeding edge stuff that makes life life easier because of the fact that they know, okay, this function works all the time. I can't fail, so I need to use this one function. Yes, it takes me 10 times longer to write, but I need to use this function, Okay. That's the mentality that you're propagating in your team. And at one point, like in your head, you're like, wait, that sounds like a good thing. Like no one's ever, there's never going to be any mistakes. And that's not true (laughs) because even in that situation, there will be mistakes. There will be failures. There might happen a little bit less, less often, but the reality is they're probably happening less often because your development team is building 10 times slower than the other development team that's allowed to make mistakes. Yeah, they're happening less often because there's less less features being shipped. Correct. Exactly. And less features being shipped means that there's less chance for you to make more money and for your company to progress further. Okay. Whereas allowing certain mistakes to happen and allowing developers to screw up a little bit and use some more newer technology, they're able to build faster. They're able to learn from mistakes and you're going to learn a lot more from failure than you're going to learn from perfectly successful code that you've copy pasted. So this is where the balance comes in, where you're like, as a, as a develop, a dev engineer or a dev manager or an, a CEO, an owner of a company of a startup, allowing failure to happen and having a process in place to not reprimand, but learn from that failure is your primary goal as a manager. You want to make sure that first of all, failures will happen. Being okay with that, learn from failure. Don't let it happen again. Right, that's your mentality. You're you're just getting better at the craft. At that point, you're learning how to identify things. It's sort of like seeing the person in the office in, let's say, a typical IT situation where the one person has been in that office for so long, so much seniority. They're super familiar with everything, and the only reason why they're familiar with it is because things have broken, or they've deployed that thing, or they've had to replace things when they've when they've broken or when they're uh, obsolete. And so this person has had exposure and has stepped out of the comfort zone at this point so many times and is in that environment 
with such a high level of seniority to the point where, you know, they don't need to step out of their comfort zone to basically see every single thing. I'd also like to say one other thing, too, is this is like almost talking to that typical and this drives me nuts. The typical situation where you go to get something repaired, something, let's say, like an air conditioner. And then the the tech comes out and I've never seen this type of error before. Or I've never seen this person before. And like the amount of times that I've had a situation and personally in which the tech has never seen that problem before. I'm like, man, either like this is a either I'm doing something special to my air conditioner I'm, or like I don't even know what to say. Like, am I in a special environment? Is the sun at a certain angle? Like, why is it that the air conditioner, this appliance, that appliance, they've never seen it before. And so when they say that, I mean, maybe it's. Maybe they're lying to get more money or something. I don't know. But um, it's usually because like there's so many things that can go wrong. And at the end of the day, some of those things are because of a failure of engineering of the company. And it's not their company. It's the company that made like actually made the product that they install and might. It could be a mistake of in, in installation, but it could also be a mistake of engineering. Like it's there's a reason why we don't just have like the perfect car the perfect computer, you know, the perfect desk, there's going to be problems where it's like, oh, yeah, those ones used to rust out on the back end or, hey, those ones used to have a tendency to like blow a stack or that that one used to be a little ram heavy. And, you know, well, like that, those technically are all failures. It's just realistically a part of the process. And then hopefully that person that made, say, that ram heavy app goes and learns how to make things less ram heavy in the next project. Yep, exactly. Like it failures will a lot of times be out of your control like an update to the os a update to the framework that you're using that automatically ran or something like that a lot of times failures of applications will be out of your control and if you let that affect you in a way that like negates your ability in the sense that like hey i this application failed it was my fault now i can't proceed anymore because some people get locked in failure Right. Like they're just, they just stop progressing. They stop doing what they're doing and they, they give up. This is when I don't, what I don't want you to do is give up unless like obviously it's, it's obvious that you need to in certain situations. There will be, we'll talk about that in a sec, but regardless, failure is not something that should indicate you need to give up. And especially when it's not out of, not in your control. I, I think we, I think it would be the prime time right now to mention that there are reasons why you would want to kind of slow down your dev team, though. And that would be things for very, very critical systems like life or death situations, financial systems, those type of things. There's a reason why those systems are usually so dated and old and whatever. It's because uh, or even point of sale, like even though there are a lot of modern point of sale, there's also a heck of a lot of old point of sales. Uh, people are still using those IBM computers with the big CRT monitors. I've seen that even just a few Christmases ago at a retail store, and they continue to use that because it's tried and true. Um, there's just a reason why we do use some of those systems, and that is because you don't want innovation in those areas. Like that heart monitor or that thing that confirms that you have transferred a million dollars, if it works, you don't want to innovate that. You want to keep that uh, exactly the same. So you might be in a situation in which you work at a company that's like that. There are reasons why they may be, hopefully they're not like punishing you every time, but there may be reasons why they're like, Hey, we're not going to use the latest thing. Cause this freaking works and we're not messing around. Like we're not going to re-engineer, re-engineer. Cause then it's like, oopsie lost 10 million. Well, guess better the old drawing board. It's like having too many video elements is one thing losing $10 million because it, it's, it's removing zeros because the float was wrong. Like the number, 
like like the two fixed or the float or whatever the heck it was, the math float math round or whatever the heck it is in JavaScript, uh, like was set incorrectly. That's you know that would be very bad, very very bad. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. So financial and life critical are two things where you want to avoid failure as much as possible. Now, having said that, in certain situations when you're building those systems. The incremental process of improving them or building them, not the live process of deploying, the incremental process of learning, of building should have some room for failure because again, you want to innovate. You want to create a better system. And if you have are too rigid during your development of that system, then that could lead to some negative impact to your team. But as you deploy a financial critical system, there has to be it has to be pretty much 100% ready for deployment. Whereas if you deploy a web application that takes in someone's, uh, you know, podcast and spits out a, a, a text version of that podcast, the, the failure of that is not going to impact an entire business, an entire business's financials. It's not going to cause 10 million people to get laid off and stuff like that. Like you need to understand the implications of what you're building. And proceed with caution based on those implications 100%. The other thing that I do want to say on this topic is that as a team lead, as a tech lead, you need to put in systems that allow for certain types of failure sometimes. Okay, so for instance, you have a production system for a SaaS that literally like if, if it's down for a few minutes, it might cause millions of dollars to be lost. Like that, that is in, that isn't a outrageous thing that can happen in a large SaaS company. Okay. Well, that shouldn't, that shouldn't limit your team from being explorative and creating better systems. So there should be a way to do it so that you can build new features without affecting the entire company's bottom line if they fail. And to do that, you can use systems that do some sort of really incremental A B testing. So you release new features only to like 1% or 2% of the people that are there so that if it does fail, you're only affecting a very small portion of the company. And while that's happening, if there's a failure, you can learn from it and build on top of it, right? You can use systems with really easy revert, like reversion of deployment so that if something fails, you can revert in one click and 10 minutes and you're back, you're back ready to go. So building in these systems that allow for failure can also help your team your team's progress and your your own progress because again you're allowing your team to build better features faster that's the goal of this well the thing with that too is like there's we we see it even with things that aren't super super mission critical as well because people don't want to have major bugs so things like a video game going down i mean something like say like a fallout 76 or something like that they'll use and many other companies as well there are many other games as well we'll use like a pts which is i think stands for public testing server in which they will especially if it's a large update they'll put it on the pts and like the pts can go up down it can break things and it usually um depending on you know the, the game of course and what they've decided to implement but usually it'll like take almost like a snapshot of like your save from your like from the real server and like put it in there so it's you know six days old or whatever if the pts has been running for six days and then it you can go run around and play and if you're like hey all my money's gone it's like oh we have a money bug like good that's a good thing we found out in the pts and you know people are aware of that and then the people who want to make content on the latest feature and that get to play 
with the latest features. They get to show that off on their YouTube channels and whatever, assuming you're allowed to do that on the, whatever PTS it is you're on. But it allows you to do that. And like the reason why I mentioned this is because those are non-mission critical things where I guess it is mission critical to have that game running, but it's not a SaaS in that way. Like if it's there are SaaS games like World of Warcraft, but if World of Warcraft goes down for half an hour, comes back up, I don't know how many subs they would lose. Like they would know that. I don't know that. So I'm assuming it's not a lot. Maybe it is. But Mike's right in that if you're if you're running like an ad based thing where you're making people watch video, they make a free account. They it, it's a uh, there's a premium tier. But let's say everyone has to watch content in order to uh to generate ad revenue. And then if they pay for a premium account, that goes away. Well, if you, if it suddenly goes down, no one's watching anything. Now everything's all messed up because you could have premium users leave, but you also have the free users no longer watching the ads. And now you have that problem. And, and like, even if it's nothing serious in terms of like, it's not life or death, it's still not good. Yeah, exactly. If you're looking for some help with your website, then look no further than Clio Websites. Clio Websites is a Canadian web design company and digital marketing agency. They help businesses grow by launching beautiful and scalable web design projects. Clio specializes in responsive web design, web development, WordPress website maintenance, e-commerce, and search engine optimization SEO services. They build fast and scalable WordPress solutions tuned for excellent marketing results that will bring in new leads and their websites are fast and can be easily updated and managed by their clients. And their websites can handle millions of visitors every month, which can bring in thousands of leads. They've been doing this since 2006 from their home base in Calgary, Canada. Go check them out for your next web development project via cliowebsites.com. That's C-L-I-O websites.com. Your business deserves a great performing website. Why not work with a great team to get there? And the next thing here for types of failure is a social failure. So you want you might wonder what does social failure have to do with web development? Well, I think it has a lot to do with it because personally, I I feel like early on in my career, I very significantly failed in the social aspect. Okay, to grow as a developer, you need to put yourself out there, talk to other developers, and allow for your code to be reviewed, ripped apart, and talked about and whatever like you need to put yourself out there to to get some feedback on what you're writing if you're a especially if you're someone that's working remote or someone that's working as a contractor or anything like that where you don't have a team of developers or a mentor to look at it this is where something i could have definitely leveled up as a developer really quickly if i were to allow for failure. If I were to have allowed myself to submit my code to open source more often, if I were to have, you know, asked more questions in communities, if I were to have done anything to step into the tech community more than I, similar to how I did a couple of years ago when I, you know, talk, started talking to people on tech Twitter, started the Discord community for it. We started this Discord community on HTML, all the things. And in there, I learned to accept failure. I learned to go on Twitch and code my crappy code and get ripped apart on there. But from that, from those even few Twitch sessions that I had, I learned a ton, like actually a ton. And it opened my eyes to how much, <laughs> how much failure I wasn't letting in. Okay. So this is more about the opportunity to fail properly where you, where you can fail, like, especially if it's something that's not affecting anyone. It's only affecting your own learning. 
right? Like this is, this is the perfect place to fail. Where we were talking earlier about like financial institutions. Yeah. That's probably not the best place to practice your failure. Like if you're, if you're, your first job is at a bank and you take down the entire infrastructure of a bank, that's going to leave a, a bad taste in your mouth. But if you're learning to code and you're worried about someone ripping apart your code, you are failing. And you need to be okay with that failure. And you need to be okay with reversing that failure by allowing others to review it and tell you where you're n- not strong in and tell you what you need to fix. And just being okay with getting that feedback and proving to, to yourself that you're okay with receiving critical feedback and, and failing as in like you're failing to write the right code at this point in time. Do that as much as you can early on because as you grow in your position – and go into more company company projects and stuff where it actually affects the bottom line, your room to failure grows a little bit smaller than like we were talking about before, and you don't have this opportunity as much. Next thing here is be comfortable being uncomfortable, okay? This is a really important aspect of growing as a developer, of becoming better due to failure. When taking on new projects, I'm perfectly okay with using technology and skills that I haven't used before. Now, having said that, it's not like I go out and, and you know, I'm comfortable with JavaScript and all of a sudden I'm going to take a project in uh, C or C++. Like that's usually probably not going to happen because I'm more comfortable with JavaScript. But if it's something in the JavaScript ecosystem or around the JavaScript ecosystem, right, I'm more I'm okay with taking it because I have a good basis in JavaScript, even though Maybe I've never used React before, okay? I've used Vue. That other thing, like, yes, I haven't used it before, but I, I'm comfortable with the fact that I can learn it and I can fail my way through it and I can get a good product out at the end of the day. Do you disclose all that stuff? Like when you, if someone says, hey, you know, we really want to make this calculator app and we'd really want you to make it in Svelte. And if that at that point in time, you had never touched Svelte before, do you tell them that? Or do you just say, yep, I can make you a calculator app, no worries. I'll get Svelte up and running and we get going. Like how, when it's an employer-employee situation, it usually they'll vet that and like that'll just kind of come out where it's like, do you know anything about Svelte? It's like, no. But, so, <laughs> yeah. you know, but if we're doing like an agency job, because we do run an agency, if we do an agency job and they they'll just sometimes call you and be like, hey, I want this done in Svelte. They're not going to ask if we know Svelte. They're just going to assume because we're agreeing that we know Svelte. So like how much uh, of that is like disclosed or how much of it is just like, yeah, we'll get it going. And then you're just confident that you can get going. Most of it is disclosed. I'll say that. Like uh, I usually explain the parts that I know really well. And the and I usually explain the parts that I will have to read up on some more practice, test out and implement. Right. So in during the process of negotiating the contract or looking at the the problem, the requirements of what I need to be building, you you can usually pinpoint different areas, and this is what I usually start with, of concern to me. The, the areas that I'm going to have to focus on initially to make sure that I can do this project. And those are the areas that I bring up very adamantly to the client being like, hey, these are the things that are going to be the most difficult. This part I've done before a million times. That's not an issue. But here's why I can do those things, right? Like, so if it's something like I need to implement something in Svelte Kit where I've only used Vue before, I can be like, I've implemented this part pretty much in Vue. So I can just take, you know, a comparison of that and implement it in Svelte Kit. So you can reassure them by explaining how you've approached prop- similar problems before. And because development is such a ever-growing system with a billion different 
ecosystems and libraries and frameworks, usually a good, you know, manager or something like that, uh, the, the hiring manager will understand that you're not going to know everything 100%. Even if you know the stack 100% of what they use, how they use it is going to be different from all the other jobs that you've ever had. So the reality is you're never going to be in a situation where you go from one client to another client and you're going to be using the exact same stack if you're going to be building on top of what they're doing. Obviously, if you're doing something on your own and you're create, for instance, you're just building, um, accounting websites. Okay. For accounting firms, then yes, you can just reuse the copy paste the exact same code, change some styling and you're good to go. You don't have to learn anything else. But when you're working in the systems that I'm working in usually, which is frameworks and complex web applications and web three stuff, like, most of the time there, there's already preset technical pieces that I have to adapt around. And therefore, I am going to be using something that I haven't used before. And I tend to look for an ideal split of 60-40, where 60% of what I'm doing is in my comfort zone and 40% of what I'm doing is directly outside of it. Okay. So an example, if I'm going to be doing something like – before. Uh, this was about a year ago. I had never used Next.js before. Okay. I had used Node.js before, obviously, and I've used Vue and Nux before, but I never used Next. And there was a few other pieces on top of that, like uh, Ethereum Wallet Connect, Web3 Wallet Connect, I had never used before either. And there was another piece of it. I can't remember. But I had used the core function, the core technology. So I knew how it worked. And I sold myself enough to be like, I can do this. And this was a really ideal 60-40 split for me because I learned that 40% really, really well during that time, enough for me to take on the next project, which again, was similar to this one. But again, it had another whole piece on top of it that was another probably 40% more complicated and 40% different and outside my comfort zone. So I almost look for projects that are outside because I know how quickly I can ramp up and grow and fail like i to say that I screwed up many times is an understatement. Um, now, while I was building it, I obviously screwed up. When I deployed it, it was in fairly good shape. But yeah, I hit many roadblocks. I had roadblocks where I had to go and I had to talk to creators of libraries. I had to submit GitHub issues. I had to get help from outside of the organization. Like I had to talk to other senior engineers that I knew. Like the fact that the point that I want to make is that you have to be okay with doing something like that. Now, 60-40 might be a little bit uncomfortable for you for starting out. You might want to do 80-20. However, you want to split that up. Like maybe just one part of the of the application is different than what you're used to or something like that. Not a whole 40%. But as you grow into a more senior level, you'll find that you're more comfortable taking less, less no, like taking on projects that you know less about. If that makes sense, because you'll know that, hey, I can get from point eight, from point from zero to 100 pretty damn quickly. So I'm not worried that, hey, it's something I haven't done before. Uh, for me, uh, in this particular regard, I don't really have like a set metric of like a 60 40 split or anything like that, but I do like I am a bit skittish. Like I'm always like, ah, I'd like to stay in my comfort zone type thing. Uh, I do step out of it a little bit, like more like tiptoe. But what I do find helps me a lot is I do like to set up playgrounds. And what I mean by that is like a coding playground. So I will take a client's website. And if I'm really not sure that their website's going to work, like a WordPress site, and I'm like, man, this, I don't know if this plugin's going to work. I will set it up somewhere that's usually on a completely different server. So I don't even have 
the same, you know, RAM and CPU or anything. So nothing's going to go run rampant, take all the disk space or something. I put it on a completely different testing service and then I just play with it. And I go in there and I break it. I smash it. I go in there and it's like, this is a mess, you know, ripping files out and just do whatever. And I take notes and take notes and take notes on like what I deleted, what I didn't, what I that. Eventually it's a rat's nest, right? Like that thing that I played with chances are, are not going to go into production. Like even if I get the feature working, I now know, hey, I didn't need to delete that file. Hey, I needed to add that. Hey, I actually could have deleted this plugin and installed this other one. And this replaces a couple plug. Whatever the situation calls for, I've done that all in the playground. Now, if I do need to set up a staging environment or something like that, I'll do it with the help of my notes where I'm going through and going, okay, this step, check, good. This step, check, good. This step, check, good. Okay. You know, and then do the deployment. Every deployment is a little different, whatever, especially when working with small businesses, they all got different hosts and stuff like that. But the point of the matter is, for me, it's just taking it away from the client's work completely to the point where I've worked on my, actually our most recent, um, WordPress project that I've worked on. I didn't even have access to the production environment. They just gave me the files and said, Hey, can you make this work? And I just proved it to them on a little testing environment, a little private testing environment, showed them and they're like, cool, deploy that now. And then that was it. And that was that was the end game. And and I deployed it on the testing environment, the playground twice, because I absolutely ripped it to shreds the first time. And obviously, there's going to be little things that I forgot to clean up or didn't even know I had to clean up or whatever. So now it's like, okay, let's go. So now it's not 30 steps. It's 10 steps. And I'm going to redeploy it from back where it was. Do the 10 steps. Oh, look, now it's exactly how the client wants. Cool. This is basically my staging environment or whatever. Again, every environment's different. I'm not going to get not going to get into all that this episode, but now I show them they're happy. Boom. OK, cool. Let's go. And so that to me anyway, helps with the comfort zone thing because it's like, oh, no, I failed in an, in an area where they can't see and it doesn't affect anything <laughs> like who cares? Mitigating the risk, the impact of failure. Exactly. That's, that's really important. Yeah. And that's that's what I wanted to talk about next, actually, is like, OK, you failed. Now what? Right. Well, this is the point that I want to make is Matt, Matt just described a situation where he had a test server where he could fail all he wants. That's the situation that you want to give yourself in almost every project, especially when you're starting out. Most of the time you are in a place where any situation that you're in, you can just fail as much as you want, right? But failures add up, obviously, especially in a mental capacity where like you continue to fail, you continue to fail, you continue to fail, and that could stop you from succeeding. Right. So it's not just like, it's not just about production failures or whatever. It's about your own personal mindset of how you deal with the failure, but you need to be okay with it. Even in your own personal situation, in your, in your own small little developer environment. Okay. So you failed. Like nothing went down. You're good. And when you get to production, that's the same kind of mentality that you need to try to continue with. You need to set up test environments. You need to create a situation where you can adjust your database to accept different values so that you don't have a rigid data system. What happens if you forgot this one property, right? Like when you're designing your tech stack, right? You forgot to add the number property or like the, uh, the date to your user creation. Well, in some situations that would require you to recreate an entire database, lose all the data and do that. That is a situation where you're setting yourself up for very rigid failure. For like, you're, you can't make a mistake here. Otherwise you have to throw out all the data. If you use something like planet scale with Prisma, 
that all of a sudden, and PlanetScale is a database, Prisma is an ORM for that database. It's just an example. Don't worry about the technology. I'm making a situation where I can now migrate my database. So if I need a new property added to a user, it doesn't require me to drop all of my data. I can just quickly add it, push it up, and it's done. I made a situation where I am allowed to fail. I don't need everything possible, everything possibly rigid before I can even start the project. And as you're developing, as you're going up in your skill level, as you're making larger and larger projects, you have to keep that in mind. Allow your team and yourself to fail. And that that comes into tech tech choice, that comes into management style, that comes into how you treat yourself as well as others, right? Like if you're a manager that is always beating yourself up, for little failures, what do you think the the people below you, the people that you're mentoring will do? They're going to beat themselves up as well. So you need to, when you fail, you need to explain that, hey, I failed. That's cool. Like we'll learn from this so that others can do that as well. So it, it really goes all the way down from when you're first learning to code and all the way up from when you're a CTO. You have to accept failure every step of the way and you have to promote systems that allow for failure. Now, Matt, you, I think, wanted to quickly talk about battling through anger and disappointment. Yeah, I did, because uh, I like this is definitely my number one problem with stuff like this is like I'm definitely a fiery person and I get pissed off on myself, just to be blunt. And so I'll be sitting there and messing around with it, messing around with it, messing around with it. Let's say it's a Svelkid project and I'm messing around with it. I don't understand what the heck's going on. And I never allow myself the... And I'm trying to get better at this, but I, I never allow myself the like the sort of like learning curve where I, I try to advance too quickly where it's like, OK, I understand variables. Now I'm on to the next thing. OK, now I understand this. Now I'm on to this thing. And I, I never give myself the breaks in between or I never give myself the uh, like the benefit of the doubt that I will understand it. I'm just sort of like, well, I don't understand this. I guess I'm I guess I'm screwed. And I just like walk out and then that's it. And so um it's definitely like a difficult thing if you are a fiery person. Like I'm not a neurologist or psychiatrist or a doctor at all, but from seeing other friends that are like me, it's definitely like a difficult thing to fight through anger, disappointment. Cause I know, I know a lot of people that will try something twice and then just be like, well, that, that sucked. And because that feeling of that thing sucked, they'll walk away and they'll never come back to that. It's almost like they're embarrassed about it. They're disappointed in themselves and it's over. They're not going to do it. And this is maybe a weird picture to paint, but the thing that helps me through it is I don't want to be the person that has to sit out of a group activity. Some things I'll sit out of by choice and be like, I ain't doing that. But I don't want to be that person that, say, like shows up to like the golf course, does like two bad swings and goes like, well, I guess I'm just going to like sit out with this one, boys, and like hang out in the cart and, you know, maybe be like just even like angry or upset or even just like not participating. Like even if I'm not participating well, I'd rather be like at least trying and be like a little jovial with it. And that's that for me, that's like the number one um, benefit. The number one or number one image I paint is like, I would rather benefit from the constant failure and the constant practice and still be involved with the group activity and still be working uh, on whatever it is, working on my golf swing, working on spelt kit or whatever the heck it is, rather than being like, well, that guy, he doesn't know anything and he won't move. And we all have that person in the office. If you're in a team of people where they've, especially if it's an older company where they've, they've, they work on the invoicing system. The invoicing system has never changed since they've been there. They got 15 years in, uh, of experience. They're not learning anything new and they're proud to not 
learn anything new and they're not budging. And so they're almost sitting out in a way. And yes, like there's going to be times where you're just going to be like, man, I'm not going to learn that other thing because I've learned about 1500 other things and I'm not running this entire company. So there's reasons to, you know, sit out. And that's what I mean by sometimes you have to choose to sit out, but I don't want to be the person that gets forced to sit out by my anger and disappointment and like sadness or even feeling pathetic or whatever. I'm trying to avoid a pathetic, what I would define as a pathetic situation. I don't know if that's the right way to say it. It kind of sounds harsh, but that's what I am personally trying to avoid. And I don't know if that helps anyone out there, but that's just sort of my number one struggle when it comes to screwing things up. Yeah. Learn, learning to fail to avoid emotional disappointment. Like the emotions definitely play a huge part in this, like a huge part in the failure aspect. So talking about anger and disappointment, talking about, the just, you know, feeling like a failure. That's, that's that feel, that's that feeling that you have to learn to control to be able to learn how to fail and grow as you do it. Now we've talked about failing. We've talked about learning how to fail and accepting failure and, and allowing for systems of failure. What we want to talk about at the end here is when is it okay? Like accept failure. When to like, you know, put that line in the sand of like, I failed enough. And what to do in that situation or like what to react, how to react to that situation. And I think it all comes tying into burnout. A lot of it, at least, ties into burnout because failure can lead to the emotional side of things we just talked about. And that can lead to you waking up every single day and dreading every part of your job. Right. You don't want to get into a situation where the failures that you have are getting to that point, but it will, or it might happen, right? So this is your indicator of like, hey, I need to stop trying to push through something. I need to stop trying to push through the failure and maybe take a step back. Maybe accept the failure that has occurred. That can happen. It's part of life and you need to focus on something else. Maybe it's taking a break completely from whatever you're doing. Maybe it's just focusing on a completely different technology. Maybe it's just do, using another approach that you ha- you find a lot more fun. Something that doesn't com- like give you that dread again, because that dread, that's your indicator. And everyone's indicators are different. I want to say for burnout, for me, it's like waking up and being like, I hate this. I don't want to do anything about this job that I'm doing right now. And that's a good indicator for me that I need to change something. But for other people, it might be completely different. So you need to find out what your burnout symptoms are and attack them before they actually turn into burnout because burnout can be a career ender. You know, you know what one big thing, at least for me, is is when the project, let's say in this particular context, is a burden itself. Well, failure is another burden. And if you're really enjoying the project, like I've worked on gaming websites and I like doing that. So if I accidentally crash the WordPress and it goes to the white screen of death and it takes me half a day to fix it, it's like, you know, it sucks. And, you know, maybe it's a bit of a like a sweaty situation. I would define it as you're trying to get it up as quickly as possible. But I still enjoy the project. I still you know like the vision of the project. I'm still interested in the content, whatever. And so you're you're trying to fix it and you want to be there to fix it. But when you don't even want to be there to build it, you don't even want to maintain it. And then something goes wrong. There's a failure, whether literally the system itself has failed or you've screwed something up and it's causing a failure to cause you to do more work to fix it. It's like a double burden. It's like a burden inside of a burden. 
And that to me is like where the burnout system is like we've we've dropped projects in the past because like I just couldn't handle it. And I just like said, like, this is a disaster. Like I'm going I'm going nuts. We're working on this. It's not a lot of money. We like this is this is not sustainable for me. And this is why. And I'm not the type of person to just completely like leave and leave somebody hanging. But I will start the process of, hey, I can't work on this anymore. Here's the legitimate reason why. This is what I'd recommend to transition you to somebody else, or this is what I'd recommend you transition to a new technology. Oftentimes it's like, hey, let's move you to no code. Hey, uh, you know, let's get you off of this. Hey, we need to simplify your stuff or, hey, I can't work on this anymore. I have a friend that can. I'll give you his number. Boom. That type of thing. Uh, we've only done that a few times. It's like, I don't want to make a habit out of this, but it, that's when it is it for me is when it's, when it's like a burden and I dread their email or I dread their call where like, I'm already don't want to work on it. And then they're like, Hey, something's gone wrong. I'm like, Oh, like now what? But then there's other clients on the exact same tech stack where they'll call and I'll be like, okay, let me just go take a look. It's not like it is a burden and that I have to do it. I'm not like, super excited that something's not working, but I'm not like terrified, scared, anxious because of that. So for me anyway, and I'm sure for others, a burden inside of a burden is the like, I'm going to burn out. I'm going to go. I'm going to go nuts. And I and I can take it for a while. Like some projects are crappy for a while and then they kind of, you know, let's say level out or maybe they're bringing in more team members to assist. And you're just sort of having to weather the storm because it's the summer or everyone's on vacation or whatever. You can weather the storm to a point, but then there comes a point where it's like, okay, like I'm, I'm getting out of here. Absolutely. I think that that was a really good example. The other thing that can kind of be an okay way, an okay point to give up is when your failures and the negativity that's caused by the failures are affecting other people negatively for an extended period of time, right? So if your failures are really slowing down the development of something significantly and other people are just constantly like, you know, talking to you and trying to get information. That's when you need to accept that, Hey, I probably can't do this. You need to either ask for help at that point, transition to something else. You need to be upfront about that because as soon as other people are involved in your failures on a significant level, that's going to bring you down as well very quickly. Okay. Like talk about something that could be a career ender. That could be a career ender right there. So you need to get on top of it before it gets to that point, either transfer again or uh, ask for help. Is it ever acceptable to give up like we've just talked about before? Absolutely. Matt gave a perfect example. He dreaded working on a project and he tried like this was a significant amount of time that we tried to make it work and it just did not work in any capacity. So like financially and emotionally and whatever, like any capacity. And yes, that's when you need to give up. You need to give yourself the opportunity to give up. Okay. Otherwise, again, burnout's going to happen. You're going to get out of the industry. You need to make sure that you don't follow the sunk cost fallacy. Like if you've been working on something significantly over the past three years and it's not bringing in what you want it to bring in, it's not growing the way you want it to grow. You need to be okay with transitioning to something or pivoting and stuff like that. Like you need to be okay with being like, yes, it's acceptable. I need to move on to something else. Again, sunk cost fallacy is very important in almost anything that you do, including development. And, you know, at the end of the day, these are failures. Yes, yes, they're real failures, but you still are probably going to take a lot of lessons and learn from them. So it's not, again, 
it's about how you approach and mentally change the narrative of a failure that will help you grow as a developer rather than treating it as something that's burdening you. Try to find the positives. Like I said, with my failure of choosing the wrong tech stack with grid versus flexbox, it's a small little thing, but overall, like, yeah, it was a failure, but I learned so much during that process so quickly and I was able to turn it around and I was able to get something out there that I was proud of at the end of the day. And I, yeah, it's a failure, but I did learn something and I did move on from it. Yeah, sort of like as a closing note for myself, like, is it is, there, is it ever acceptable to give up? To sort of answer that question, like, my instinct is it's a hard-pressed yes. It's going to be different for everybody. Like, some people are definitely not going to be able to weather the storm as long or whatever. But for me, it's like, no, I'm going to sit there and, like, weather the storm as long as I can. But I am going to sort of listen to my own, uh, I don't know what you'd say, mental health or physical health or whatever. But I'm going to monitor that. And, like, in this particular case, it was to the point where... There's, I mean, there's been a few of these, but like, it's usually, I regret making the call of saying, Hey, I need to leave this project. But then once I'm, once I leave, I'm relieved. And then I know I've made the right choice. And it sucks because it's like, I have to leave the project to, to feel that relief. But it's like, I, that's why I, I, I weather it because there's, there's times where we've spun up someone's project. And they're super hands on. They're super micromanagey, and they're just like keep bugging you, bugging you, bugging you about like, hey, like let's let's make the Twitter logo a little bit less blue, more blue, less blue. Let's make it red. Like it's it gets, starts getting ridiculous, and it starts becoming nitpicky. And you're like, man, this sucks. But you, but we've weathered that so many times. We've weathered that for like two, three months. They sort of get bored of trying to change their website. They're happy with where it's at, and then they just sort of disappear, and they don't bug you as much. And that's not like. I'm not trying to say that clients are bugging you when they're asking for help, but when it, there are clients that I've absolutely like moved something, moved like a heading on a blog. Let's do left line, center line, right line in the same day. No, that's do center now. Okay. Left, right, left. And this was in the back in the days of static sites. So like I had to do it and it's like, okay, FTP it up. Okay. Okay. Oh, now they want it right line. Okay. Do it again. Okay. And it's like, it's starting to get to the point where it's like, what are we doing? <laughs> And, you know, two years into doing that, I would be like, no, I'm not doing this or like a year in or maybe even a few months. I'd be like, no, this is this is lunacy. Like, I'm not doing that. But um, I'll weather it for a bit because they're they're new to it and they'll they might get bored of it. That's just one example of my hard pressed. Yes, it's okay to give up because I've weathered the storm. It went away. I don't even want to quit now. So it's cool. But like, hey, that person's really, really needs help all the time. They're asking for, you know, ridiculous things like left, right, center, left, right, center, left, right, center. They do it every single day. They've done it for like a few months. Okay, I'm getting out of here. Or the classic, like they'll ask you for something like that, left, right, center. And they'll say it's urgent, but it's not actually urgent. Like the users can read the te- read the title. It looks like an industry standard thing where no one's going to be like, why is this right a lie? This is a, this is a disaster. Like no user is ever going to think that. You as a web developer have been to so many websites and to build so many websites at a certain point in your career where you're like, this is even if this isn't the user's or the customer's preference, this is acceptable to a website user, to one of their clients, and they want to move it totally fine. So you'll tell them, hey, I'll do that next week. And if their response is, no, this is urgent. This has to be done right now. It's sort of like, okay, too many of these type of calls false urgency like I'm out of here. And then that type of stuff will occur. Absolutely. So. Those are the type of things that I would, those are just a couple quick examples that we've experienced several times over the last year or the last, not, not even last few years, last several years at this point, um, where, you know, you weather the storm a bit and 
you just try to stick in at least in, for me i try to stay in there as much as i can but if it's just if i just uh, freaking out i can't handle it i'm like losing sleep I, i'm i'm other work tasks or other personal tasks are being affected to the point where like i can't stop thinking about it it's really really bugging me it's sort of like okay i'm hitting some burnout I'm out. And so that is sort of for me when it's acceptable to give up. Like Mike said, it's going to be different for everybody, but that's mine. Yeah, absolutely. And I think with that, we can kind of wrap up on the failure episode. It's important to learn to fail. It's important to accept failure and learn from it and just don't be afraid of it. That's the most important thing. Like mitigate the risks of failing, learn to fail early on, and you will get better as a developer. That's a guarantee for me. And a great closing note to lead right into our $3 tier patrons. Thank you, Spot. If you want to support the show, you can go check us out on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash HTML, all the things. And many thanks to these $3 tier patrons, Ryan Gatchel from Blue Black Digital on blueblackdigital.com, Tim from the Web Hacker on the webhacker.com, Pip Hashdash, 9BlockMedia, 9BlockMedia.com, Jason from Geek Life Radio via geekliferadio.com, Michael Curie from MC Web Studio via mcwebstudio.ca, Magnus from YesWeb via yesweb.se, Jeff from Twitter via at the Jeff Fire Ant Season via fireantseason.com, Gunner Brunette via gunnerbrunette.com, and Watoto Coding via watotocoding.com. Please leave a please please leave a feel free to leave a comment or review on the platform that you're listening to this on. Actually, please leave a, a, a review on Apple Podcasts, I guess. That'd be cool. And we're gonna sign off. You've been listening to HTML All the Things Podcast. Web development, web design, and small business. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. And we hope you appreciate that we talk to you like human beings. And we hope you had some fun. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit us up on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon at HTML All The Things. And on Twitter at HTML Everything. Until next time, this is HTML All The Things. Signing off.